week, I'm talking with Dr. Brendan Nelson, director of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. Dr. Nelson commenced as director of the Australian War Memorial at the end of 2012. Prior to this, from 2009 through to 2012, he was the Australian ambassador to Belgium, Luxembourg, the European Union and NATO. Born at Coburg in Victoria in 1958, Dr. Nelson studied at Flinders University, South Australia, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery. He worked as a medical practitioner in Hobart from 1985 to 1995. In 1993, he was elected unopposed as National President of the Australian Medical Association, becoming the youngest person ever to hold this position. During his time as National President of the AMA, he campaigned on a wide range of social policy issues, including Aboriginal health and immunisation, and also led the campaign against tobacco advertising and sponsorship in sport. In 1995, Dr. Nelson retired as president of the AMA following his pre-selection as the Liberal candidate for the Sydney seat of Bradfield. In 1996, Dr. Nelson was elected to federal parliament and in 2001, he was promoted to cabinet as Minister for Education, Science and Training. In 2006, he became Minister for Defence when troops were deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor and the Solomon Islands. In November 2007, Dr Nelson was elected as leader of the Liberal Party, serving as leader of the opposition until September 2008. The following year, he retired from federal politics before taking up his ambassadorial appointment over in Europe. With such a remarkable career of service to others, it was wonderful to be able to chat with Dr. Nelson about his current work at the Australian War Memorial. You've had quite a varied career from being a medical doctor to the AMA, to politics, then to being a diplomat and now the War Memorial. What led you ultimately to be working at the War Memorial? You've only got one life and before you know it, it's gone. And I remember being 20 as if it was yesterday. And I made a conscious decision, uh, having dropped out of an economics degree and spending a year in the workforce in a department store in a hotel working, that a life of value would be one spent in the service of others. So when I was in Brussels as our ambassador to NATO and the European Union and Belgium, uh, uh, people would ask me every day, what, what will you do when you go back to Australia? And I was approached about and offered quite a number of things, some of them very lucrative. The then government, uh, Prime Minister Gillard, um, asked me if I'd be interested in doing four instead of three years over there. And I, I thought three was enough, even though I was appreciative of it. We, we'd had major changes in our key relationships, particularly with NATO and the EU. But I said to my wife, look, whatever I do when I go back, I've got to do something meaningful. I felt that I had more public service in me, the medical profession, the taxpayers of Australia had invested a lot in me, and I didn't know what it would be, but about a month after I'd been asked by the government to think about staying in Belgium, uh, I found out quite by accident that the position of director of the Australian War Memorial had been advertised, and that the government was prepared to appoint a non-military, non-historian. As soon as I completed the phone call where I discovered this, uh, I filled in a job application online. I subsequently was asked to come back for Australia for an interview, which I did, and then three weeks after that I was told that I had 
been appointed as the director of the Australian War Memorial. People often think that the, someone in the government said, hey, Brendan, you want to run the War Memorial? And that was no such thing. I, I went through a process. Uh, in fact, I had two interviews on the phone with the headhunter before I was asked to come and uh, have a face-to-face interview with the panel. How was that in comparison with, say, the appointment as an ambassador versus so really just going in and applying for something that you saw was really important to you versus something which is important but someone appoints you to? Well, it was interesting. At the interview, one of the members of the panel, in fact, the then Public Service Commissioner, said to me, uh, Dr Nelson, when was the last time you actually applied for a job? <laughs> and, uh, I said, oh, well, I said, I, I remember applying for the paediatric training program uh, uh, at the Flinders Medical Centre in Adelaide uh, in 1984, and I was accepted into it and uh, subsequently decided uh, a year into it it wasn't for me. But... Um, but it was the first time since then I'd gone through such a process. It was interesting, one of the people very heavily involved with the process um, actually said to me, Dr Nelson, do you know much about museums? And uh, I said, uh, no, no I don't. And I said, I've visited a few. And uh, he said, you've never run one, have you? And I said, no, of course not. And uh, anyway, he, he said to me, um, well, why on earth would we want you running the War Memorial? And uh, I said, well, if, if, if they're after an expert, I'm not the person for the job. But as I understand it, there are nearly 300 people work there and they're all experts. They've forgotten more than I'll ever know. But I also said, um, but I've learned something about experts from my time in the medical profession through everything I've done since. And they, that is that they see the world through a straw. And this job would be to not only manage the memorial, but more importantly, to be a leader of it, ambassador for it, And the job is to apply intellectual rigour to the process of exercising judgement on behalf of not only the institution but the nation. And what you do in this is you draw on all of the expertise that's not only within the memorial but indeed outside of it. And that is precisely my my view of it. So we have a a magnificent team here of, of people that have great expertise in exhibition design, in history, military heraldry and technology. As I said, forgotten more than I'll ever know. But my job is to lead and apply judgment. Uh, and often it's plain common sense, to be honest with you. So it's a, it's a great privilege, uh, but uh, I am definitely not an expert. I don't profess to be. Uh, my job is quite different. I think that probably gives you an outside perspective looking in, really, doesn't it? And, and that gives you the ability to go, how, how else can we utilise the skills of others and, and make the most out of an experience for someone who could just be walking in off the street? Well, one of the most common things I say to the staff is, look, I say, you've got to think like the normal person. And from, from my very first day, in fact, uh, I've come here each day, and apart from counting my blessings to be able to, to serve in this role, I come in and I say to the staff, I've had an idea. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And uh, I, I know it sounds conceited, but... Almost all of what's happened here in the last four and a half years has been something that I have conceived. And some of my ideas, of course, have been crazy and the staff have convinced me that we shouldn't do them. But, but most of the time, it's because I do come from the outside, uh, I'm not of defence, even though I have immense respect for it, uh, I have a different perspective. You see things a little bit differently. And one of the other... Uh, challenges, I suppose, is that 
the Australian War Memorial staff are all employed as public servants. And the nature of the public service, it has immense strengths. But one of the weaknesses of public service is there's a pecking order, a hierarchy, and people often feel a little bit uh, reluctant uh, to uh, push boundaries, uh, to push their ideas and thoughts. And one of my uh, certainly credos here is to make sure that people, wherever they work in the organisation, doesn't matter what their ranking or job, that they all know that my door is open literally and also that I want to and receive their ideas and, and their thoughts about what we should or could be doing or shouldn't be doing. In fact, one of the things I learned earlier in my life when I was leading the AMA is that you've got to find people that have to be hosed down a bit. You're much, much better off having people that are coming in with 10 ideas a day, seven of which are mad, uh, but a couple are really good. You're much better off having people like that than those that you've got to put ginger up their bums to get them moving. You, you're much better off having people that have got to be hosed down. So that have enthusiasm and passion and commitment. And the most important thing, which we certainly have in our staff here, is a, is a belief in what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think that really shows, if you're walking around the galleries, and it's changed quite dramatically over the past few years, and I, I love how it's been developed. What are some of the initiatives that you've, you've undertaken with the, with the team at the War Memorial to really bring that experience to, to students of all ages? Well, the first thing is what differentiates leadership from management is vision. And the vision for the Australian War Memorial, which was articulated in 1946 by its founder, uh, Charles Bean, had been witness to everything at the very front from Gallipoli to Mont St Quentin in the First World War, is here is their spirit in the heart of the land they loved. And here we guard the record which they themselves made. We are now living in a world of which Charles Bean could not possibly have imagined. But our responsibility is to remain true to Bean's vision, but to make this history live, to make it engaging to and engaged by a new generation of Australians, whether Australian by birth or Australian by choice. And so um, amongst the things we've done, uh, we've, we've introduced a last post ceremony. So every single night, just before five o'clock, we have a flag, we have a lectern, we sing the national anthem, we remind people of the origin of the memorial of the vision of its founder. We have a piper and a bugler come out together from the Hall of Memory and stand in front of the tomb of the unknown Australian soldier. A uniformed member of the Defence Force is here every night. Wreaths and floral tributes are laid at the base of the pool. We archive the cards forever. And the uniformed person here then reads the story of just one of them just one of the 102,000 Australian men and women who were on the Roll of Honour, from the Boer War to Afghanistan and everything in between. And then the ode is recited, the last post is played, and all of it is streamed live on our website, on Facebook TV, YouTube TV. And the reason for doing that and everything else is it's very tempting uh, human beings that we are to settle for headlines, uh, popular mythology and imagery of our history, and to forget the individual sacrifices that have been made in our name. So if I say to young people, well, almost 62,000 Australians died in the First World War, or indeed not just young people, they, people naturally think, gee, that's a lot. But if you tell them the story of one single person, who was this person? Where was he or she born? Where did they grow up? Where did they go to school? 
What did they do when they left school? Who did they love? Who loved them? How did they join the military? What did they do in the military and how did they die? And then what consequences did that have for those who loved them? Then uh, they get the history. Every night from dusk to dawn, we project the names, every one of those 62,000 names onto the uh, horizontal beam just below the Byzantine inspired dome on the Hall of Memory. Every name comes up 30 times for 30 seconds. You can stand in front of the memorial on Anzac Parade and you can read the names. We have people out there at two o'clock in the morning waiting for a name to come up. And again, it's to remind them of the individuals, but also to remind us that we're Australians. There are some truths by which we live. They're worth fighting to defend politically, diplomatically, and sadly at times also militarily. Because one of the things, in fact, one of my friends said to me when I took this job, he said, I can't believe you're doing that. He said, you've got far more important things to do for Australia than rearrange its history. And I said, well, well, firstly, if you can find something that's important, you're passionate about, and you get paid for that's mission accomplished, but it's actually got a lot more to do with the future than the past. And by that, what I mean is that in a, in a world that isn't just changing, but where I think humankind is moving to a new age, as it did from the 15th to the 16th century, and we don't realise the scale and dimension of what's happening, what's most important is we must never lose sight of what it is in which we believe as Australians. We're defined by our values and our beliefs, our triumphs, our failures, our heroes, our villains, the ways of people we face adversity. And this place reminds us more than anything else of that. The soul of the country is here. And, uh, and then we've had... Um, for example, as you walk along the First World War Roll of Honour, you'll hear young voices, uh, 10, 11 year olds, year six students, uh, just reciting, we've recorded them, the names and the age of death of every single one of them. And as one uh, boy said to me when we uh, launched this particular project, uh, Remember Me, I said to him, I said, what, what does it mean to you? He'd been recording names and ages of death. And he said, I now know they were real people and they weren't made up. And then uh, we've, We've also um, introduced um, a commemorative cross program. Now, I, say, I know this is old technology, but uh, to cut a long story short, when I was in Brussels, I uh, received a letter from a man in Hobart, um, Peter Pickering. In fact, uh, listeners can't see it, but there's a photograph up there of him and me at the Toronto Avenue Cemetery at Messine on Anzac Day 2011. And uh, he and his volunteers had been making these little wooden crosses. They'd go to primary school dressed up in first of all uniform and they would talk to students about Australians in France and Belgium. And then they'd give them a little wooden cross they'd made and ask them to write their commemorative message on it and their school and their name on the other side. So as the ambassador, I said to him and his group, well, you, you send the crosses over here and I'll get them put on Australian graves at the end of the dawn service um, and other ceremony, ceremonies on Anzac Day, Remembrance Day. And it's very moving to see people picking up a cross of remembrance and walking through a cemetery with 2,000 headstones in it and looking for an Australian grave to put it on. Peter died from the very early 40s, uh, leaving a widow and two sons um, on the 18th of January 2015. And um, I spoke to him three days before his death, late diagnosis of bowel cancer. And I spoke to him and I said, Peter, your legacy's going to live. I've ordered 100,000 crosses. We have now distributed nearly, uh, nearly 100,000 crosses. They've gone on to Australian graves in 39 countries uh, as, 
uh, as a result of the support we've received from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. In fact, I've just ordered another 50,000 crosses. So again, another kind of old technology way of, of making the, the history live. Uh, the other thing that's been extraordinarily important is, is this place is part of what I call a therapeutic milieu. Uh, it isn't just a museum and an archive and a place of commemoration. It's a very important part of the matrix for men and women coming back to a country that's got no idea what they've been doing. Whether they've returned from Korea, Vietnam, a Malayan emergency, Indonesian confrontation, Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan, whatever. And I, when I arrived, the culture was to wait years after the operation had finished, the politics had washed out of it, and then we would have the exhibition. And when I arrived, I said to the staff, no, we're not doing that. We have to tell the story now. And, uh, and uh, there were a number of issues as to, I was told as to why we couldn't do it. Lack of space, lack of money. Uh, it's not the way things have been done in the past. I said, no, we're doing it. So eight months later, we opened our Afghanistan exhibition. It's very powerful. Uh, we've used a combination of traditional and new technologies and techniques to tell the story. We've got a, a, a much broader and deeper story on Iraq and Gulf War One. And part of my, and, and I realise that there's an immense amount of emotion revealed here. As one uh, Navy officer said to me, thank you for telling my 11-year-old son in words I never could why his father spent so much time away from home. And so there's a lot of, a, you know, you've, you, in life you have to be imbued with the imaginative capacity to see the world through the eyes of someone else. And you, you kind of imagine, what is it like? Imagine coming back from any one of these places throughout the world, trying to explain to your family, let alone the rest of the country, what you've done, and even more so, the impact that's had on you. So we have a lot of emotion revealed here with these exhibitions. And I, I often think that if, if we told the story of the Vietnam War broadly and deeply in the late 70s, then maybe some of those men might not have suffered quite as much as they have. So they're some of the things, and you'll see, and, and then there's more edgy things. Uh, Lee Koenig and, and I are great friends. Uh, for those listening who are unfamiliar with it, Lee's a country and western singer. He sold nearly three million albums. Uh, he was a former Australian of the Year for what he did for drought-stricken farmers. But Lee uh, was here in uh, 2013 and we were standing in front of the Tomb of the Unknown Australian Soldier and we'd just put the inscription from Paul Keating's magnificent eulogy, uh, he is all of them and he's one of us, onto the front of the tomb. And I pointed to it and I said to Lee, I think by 2015 the nation will be looking for an anthem and I reckon that's it. So he came back with Garth Porter, uh, who produces and co-writes with him. Garth was in Sherbet years ago. And uh, they produced uh, the album Spirit of the Anzacs. Sold 100,000 hard copy, biggest selling album in Australia in 2015. And that album, uh, what, what I did with Lee and Garth is we gave them letters and diaries and all of the writings of these men and women and they, they wrote and produced this fantastic album uh, which brought to life and to a new audience the, these stories, um, you know, like Bomber Command, the Keck Brothers. So we have the video playing in, in streaming in, in the galleries. Um, we had John Schumann and Hugh MacDonald for the 50th anniversary of Long Tan perform Only 19 in the Hall of Memory. So the, these are you know, just some of the things we're trying to do to make it all live. 
Excellent. And when you mentioned about that Living Afghanistan exhibit, I remember when it first came out, I had a group of Year 9 students down here with me and and most of the Year 9s will walk around a gallery, circle around a few times, then lose interest. But I found this Year 9 group just sitting in front of the screens on the Afghanistan exhibit because it was contemporary. It was now they wanted to know what was it like, what was something that they'd seen in the news, what was happening now. So that was... That was sort of a real light bulb moment for me as well, because we're still we're still helping in Afghanistan. We are, we are in Afghanistan, and I suspect we'll be there for a long time yet. And it's interesting. The experts said to me just before we opened the Afghanistan exhibition, because I brought in Chris Masters of Four Corners fame, who's done magnificent work in Afghanistan, to work with our staff on that exhibition, and it was a perfect marriage. And we've subsequently produced a documentary, um, Afghanistan, the Australian Story, and we've done a, a major redevelopment of our Middle East galleries as well to further beef up both the Iraq and the Afghanistan stories. But the expert said to me the average time that anyone would spend in that Afghanistan exhibition was seven minutes. In fact, the average time is 24 minutes. Mm. And the common experience for me, as you've obviously found, is I will walk into that gallery and there will be 30 or 40 children, school children, uh, maybe senior primary, m low to middle secondary, and they'll be sitting cross-legged on the floor glued to it, yeah. just absorbing it. It's exactly what I saw. And what I said to our staff, and I said to Chris Masters when we started on that, I said, I want these men and women to come here and to see, hear, and feel something of themselves and what they have done. And as you know, in life, people complain about anything. Mm. I haven't had a single complaint about it. In fact, quite, quite the opposite. We actually are developing and working on plans for the memorial. Our biggest problem here is lack of space. So we're, we're working with the government on, at the moment to see what can be done to expand the footprint, uh, to expand our exhibition space. And one of the things that we, we want to do, we need to do, is to actually give Australians a sense of what they're doing today. So what I'd like to do is to have a quite a big screen and uh, where we take a feed from defence and show people what's going on at Kapuka, the training camp, what, what's going on at the submarine base, or the, the, what's the Air Force doing at, at Edinburgh, uh, or what might our people be doing, uh, for example, in, uh, in Afghanistan or in northern Iraq. So obviously unclassified information, but to give people a sense as they leave the memorial that, OK, they're looking at what's happened but they need to understand that this is ongoing because most of us live in complete ignorance of what our defence personnel are actually doing. Yes, yeah. And with the records that you've been able to access and with the records, I know there's tonnes and tonnes of archives in terms of letters home, in terms of journals, diaries from the front. Would you be able to share with us just one of the stories? I know there's, there's thousands and thousands of personal stories, but is there one that you would share with us that might reflect some of the emotions between home and the front? Well, uh, early on in my tenure, thinking about how to get our story to an international audience uh, without spending money, uh, I thought History Channel. So I went to Foxtel and convinced them to do a program and they did a five-part series on the memorial. The Scottish archaeologist and historian Neil Oliver uh, came in and came and went for 16 months and one of the stories that I introduced him to is uh, of an Australian called Tom White, Thomas Anderson White. Uh, Tom White was born in Adelaide in 1886. Uh, we know that he had a brother. He went to St Peter's College. Uh, 
he left school and became an agent for the Adelaide Steamship Company. He was a champion lacrosse player. He played lacrosse for the state of South Australia, but it was in the field of rowing that he particularly excelled. And he rowed firstly for the Mercantile Rowing Club and in 1980 switched to the Adelaide Rowing Club. And in 1912, it was said of Tom White that he was the finest oarsman the state had produced. In 1914, uh, he made two momentous decisions. He, he, uh, he proposed marriage to the love of his life, a woman called Eileen Champion. And the second thing he did was only two weeks after the declaration of the war, in August 1914, along with many other South Australians, he went to the Morfordville race course and he enlisted. As with many South Australians, he went into the 10th Battalion he embarked on the transport ship Ascanius from Adelaide on the 20th of October 1914 and on that day he wrote the first of 28 letters to Eileen and he'd always take a photograph of her out of his wallet and he'd put it in front of him and he'd write, write the letters. The same thing they do today by the way. Uh, Ascanius was a part of the first convoy out of Albany and we have photographs of him here in Egypt. We have a photograph of him sitting on the pyramids with his mate Lance Rhodes and we have an informal photograph of him with eight other men in his platoon just taken outside the tent that they all shared in Egypt. Of the nine men in the photograph, five would not survive the war and a sixth, Eric Meldrum, a champion sprinter, went to Adelaide High School would suicide on a train from uh, going up to Port Pirie in uh, April 1922. So the 10th Battalion was in the first wave at the Gallipoli landing and on the night of the 24th, uh, Tom White wrote his 28th letter to Eileen. And toward the end of the letter, as they do today, he said, if anything happens to me, I want you to forget that I ever existed. Blot me out completely in spirit he said, that will be my last wish. I want you to find happiness again. Goodbye, my love. And so on. So in the photograph of the nine that I referred to, there's a small diminutive man uh, actually uh, sitting next to Tom White. Tom White, of course, being a rower, is a very big man. And that man's name is Arthur Blackburn. Uh, he, would, he was a member of the 10th Battalion. He would go on to win the Victoria Cross at Pozier. And... Blackburn uh, described what happened uh, with the landing. And Blackburn said uh, the most dangerous place of the lot was for the men who were rowing, rowing the boats. He said they had to sit upright in the boat, they couldn't crouch down for any shelter at all, and such were the dangers the officers hesitated to order men to row. But as we knew he would, Tom immediately grasped the situation and volunteered to row. And Blackburn described uh, White rowing with athletic vigour toward the shore, but laughing and joking and so on. And then when the boat hit the shingle on the shore, suddenly White slumped to the side and then to the bottom of the boat. He'd been shot through the pelvis and he died on the hospital ship Gascon, somewhere between Gallipoli and Alexandria over the next five days. He was buried at sea. He was 29 years old. His name's on the Lone Pine Memorial, and of course it's on our Roll of Honour here at the Australian War Memorial. Now Eileen Champion, when she was informed that he'd been killed, she tried to find out as much as she could about it, and she tracked down the nurse that had been with Tom the night of his death. And it's a woman called uh, Kathleen Porter, 
and she was then, by this stage, in Alexandria, in Egypt. And on the 26th of January, 1916, she wrote to Eileen, and she said, I remember him well. Uh, he had a single gunshot wound to the lower abdomen. She said he went straight into the operating room, and he, she said, I, because he was an engaged man, I stayed on duty longer that night, and I was with him in his last hour. And she said, all he would speak about was a package, a parcel, something that had to get back to Adelaide. She said, I'm sure there was something in there for you, my dear. Uh, I'm sorry I can't offer you more. Now, in 1925, 10 years later, Eileen Champion did find happiness again, and she married a man called Leslie Gordon Adamson. They had two sons. She outlived her husband, and after her death in 1985, one of those sons, Andrew Champion Adamson, going through all her very private personal effects, discovered these 28 letters from this man, Tom White, and in doing so, that his mother had loved and been engaged to this man. So then Andrew Champion Adamson, with much emotion, as you could imagine, brings those letters here to the Australian War Memorial for our benefit and that of future generations. And so digitising those letters, as you know, we've, we've been working on two million documents here, uh, is a way, of course, of bringing that that to life. And the, the, the point that I make, I, 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 it, in fact, it was Neil Oliver in the History Channel, it was Neil who, who sort of crystallised this for me, because he'd been coming and going for 16 months, and I'd been struggling with it a bit, trying to find the, the right sense of this. And he said to me, he said, Brendan, you know, it's not actually about war here. It's about love. And I, I say to young people, if they don't know what the word paradox means, I explain the word, what it means. And I say to them, it's called the Australian War Memorial, but it's not actually about war. It's in a context of war, but it's about love and friendship. Love for friends, love between friends, love of family, love of our country. It's, it's honouring men and women whose lives are devoted not to themselves, but to us and their last moments to one another. And and that's really what it's about. And uh, it's, it's a strange thing to say, but uh, you know, and if you think about it, Z Special, the origins of the, the SAS, if you like, and the Second World War, <coughs> these guys are what are they called, chicken stranglers. So they did the, some of the most daring raids and suffered significant casualties in the Second World War. So last year, we, we put a commemorative plaque out here for them. And what happens is the associations design their own plaque. And a couple of days before the event, I said to our staff, I said, what have the Z Special Veterans put on their plaque? So they had an expression in Latin, and then the English interpretation under it is, out of conflict comes friendship. That's beautiful. Yeah. A yeah. very profound statement. Yeah. When you go to another foreign war memorial, not necessarily one of our allies, what do you get from that experience? Well, every, every nation, even so-called like-minded, uh, none perhaps more so like-minded than New Zealand, UK, uh, Canada and the United States, they're different and nuances are different and so on. Uh, I've got to say, obviously I'm biased, but I haven't seen anything as good as I have seen here. And I've had heads of state uh, come through here, very senior people from other countries. I won't, um, I won't say specifically who it is for obvious reasons, but I had the, uh, the um, 
the, the monarch of a, a Gulf state uh, say to me that uh, he has a particular interest in these things, he said, I've never seen anything as good as this. I, you're always, you approach life generally, you approach other people, institutions, ideas and that with an open mind and uh, I do pick up things, I, uh, techniques about how to tell stories, portray information and so on. One of the tragedies I think is that um, the Germans uh, really don't tell their first world story and, and I think we need to understand why that's the case, it's a particular history. Certainly it's very powerful to see topography of terror in Berlin and uh, with the Germans uh, and then the magnificent exhibition they had uh, in Berlin, um, uh, Hitler in Germany, which was only open for three months uh, where they had a thousand artefacts and relics there of, of, of Hitler and uh, very subtly but powerfully they told you that rather than Hitler being imposing himself on the Germans they basically embraced him with some exceptions until the war turned against them. The closest I've seen, it's strange, you know, the closest I've seen to anything that we do here at our Australian War Memorial is the First World War Memorial and Museum in Kansas City, um, in Kansas and Missouri. Uh, it's uh, very similar, a very similar architecture. It was uh, opened in 1927. There's no triumphalism. Uh, you get a, a, a very real sense of the anguish that the isolationist America had, uh, the events leading up to its entry into the war, what happened to America uh, after it entered the war. You get the German perspective told uh, very sensitively. Uh, our story is told um, uh, you know, very well in New Zealand, Canada, the British and other, other um, countries that were involved. Uh, it's uh, certainly a, a place that I'd recommend to people that are able to go and see it. Uh, it's a very, it's a very beautiful museum. But I, I look, you, you can't say, you can't speak with any criticism of what other countries do. But I think what we do is not only good for us. I think it's actually good for the international audiences that come here. Absolutely, and and just that personal connection I find when when I've travelled, I've looked, I've seen different things, and you see a lot of equipment. There's a lot of pieces of historic equipment, whether it be planes, tanks anything like that but at the war memorial here it's that personalized experience which I've seen develop over the years yeah look the power of it's in the story mm. yes as I've said to our staff and our volunteers look yes there is an audience for people who want to know the technical dimensions of a tank and the capability of a weapon and so on and and to to, to an extent we we cater for that sort of audience but they're very much a small minority I, I say to them, the, the, you've got to think like the normal person. And normal people, their eyes glaze over. If you start to tell them about the, the dimensions of a shell that comes out of a piece of artillery, their eyes glaze over. If you start talking to them about this battalion did this and three platoons went there and this, these two men had to go over and shoot this and so on, and normal people start to disengage. But what really engages them is the human dimensions of the people that are behind it. So, of course, with immense pride, we have our Hall of Valour. We tell the story of these George Cross recipients and our Victoria Cross recipients uh, because they inspire us. We, we wish we had the qualities in us that these men obviously had in them because they're all men to date. 
But generally speaking, it's, it's about the stories of, of selflessness, of love, as I say, f- for one another and their friendship. And, you know, they went away to fight for Australia in our uniform under our flag, but in the end they die for one another. That's what it's about. That's very true. And whilst it's extremely hard to really appreciate the sacrifice that our servicemen and women made, at least through the storytelling at the War Memorial, we can gain some insight into their experience. On that note, thank you very much for talking with us today and sharing some of the great work that you're doing at the Australian War Memorial. I look forward to seeing what's coming next. Well, there's more to come, and uh, we've got a very powerful Indigenous exhibition. We now have a permanent Holocaust exhibition, and uh, we will uh, shortly be opening an exhibition on Special Forces. So keep coming. Excellent. Thank you. Look forward to seeing it. That was Dr Brendan Nelson, Director of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. For more information on the War Memorial and the wonderful programs it runs, check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave a nice review. It helps others to find the podcast and helps me to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let me know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us next week as we explore more great stories and ideas for experiential education.